Alberta sitting in for the great Paul W. Smith for the next few days. This is something I look forward to. I love sitting behind this microphone. We have a great time every time I do it. And I tell you, for the last couple weeks, I thought, how can we make these few shows that I get to do here a whole lot of fun, really interesting, captivating, take some calls, toss some things around, have a good time. And I sat, I was lucky enough to be up north with my, my two sons and my youngest brother, Tim, salmon fishing, fly fishing up at the Pierre Marquette, which is a glorious experience if you've never done it. And as we're throwing flies and drinking cheap, lousy beer, I was making notes in my head about all the things that were on my agenda, immigration and the UAW and Lions football and all these, all these necessary topics that we could go back and forth on. And then, of course, Saturday morning, one of the saddest things that I can remember in some time since 9-11 possibly took place in Israel with Hamas storming the border, sending hundreds of missiles in the air. There is death. There is destruction. There is there's rape, there is undue influence over um, many of the most innocent people in that whole region, on both sides, to be fair. And it has turned into just an absolute lightning rod of a story, one that we cannot ignore. And there's a whole lot of sadness to go around. And of course, the blame game is already starting. There's $6 billion that was unleashed at the in the midnight hour. Does that really have anything to do with it? And what what can we make of this? I'm 46 years old. Um, I don't know really why this conflict still exists. It is an absolute behemoth of an issue. And you get people from both sides that want to go back and forth. There's Palestinian supporters. Of course, there's a tremendous uh, uh, groundswell of support for Israel, as they should be, one of our strongest, if not our strongest ally for some time. Dave Rieger, when you first saw that story come across, what were you, what was your initial reaction? You know, um, it's been going on for so long that uh, I wasn't really surprised surprised although you and i discussed that you know it has been a, a while since something like this has happened around israel but um you know when you have two different you know members of you know two different factions i guess but every they they you believe what that the israelis believe that it's their land palestinians believe that it's their land it's been going on forever it's it'll be going on long after we're gone um, I don't know how you really solve this problem. Right. And there's so much, there's such a depth of complexity to this issue. A couple of years ago when I was filling in, uh, we had a professor on from U of M who, who really was trying to go very deep into the Palestinian conflict and why they had what they felt was a birthright. And really what it all boiled down to in that particular conversation was pride. This is my land. This is my birthright. You're taking my stuff away. I want my stuff back. Not too dissimilar to what Putin's been doing in Russia. And certainly we see some some real divisive tribalism here in America. But honestly, what does it all boil down to? Are we going to actually witness a terrorist organization like Hamas infiltrate a company's uh, country's rather's border and murder and maim and kidnap and kill hundreds and eleven hundred people now? is the death toll, and that will certainly climb. And now as Israel retaliates, they're hitting innocents that are you know, going to be called casualties of war. But it is a very, very sad thing. And of course, we can't ignore the UAW issue that is still now at 25, 26 days in, no real end in sight, a couple small victories for the UAW in terms of uh, battery production in the EV market. But some of the demands seem outlandish, other ones are a little bit more nuanced. It seems all of a sudden, I, I, have you noticed, Dave, that more of the uh, the proposals now are getting leaked 
um, via social media than yeah. ever before. It used to be very, very quiet up right. until the, the last minute. And then, you yeah. know, in, in former negotiations, they would present this plan and hit the highlights and the bullet points. But now everyone's got to say before anyone even gets done at the negotiating table. It's a strange paradigm. It's all very interesting. Every Friday lately, it's been, um, you know, Sean Fain going, doing a Facebook live and announcing the, the, uh, the small, like, it's almost like when you're in battle, it's almost like, uh, chopping off like a finger at a time or or one foot or like, he's kind of taking it in levels. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just an all out, everybody go strike. Right. Now it's just strategic, uh, different, um, you know, uh, factories that they pick. And sure. then because of GM coming out and saying that they were going to make that concession last week, then they decided they weren't going to ask for anything more. But he also did say that this isn't done yet. This is not, they're not at where they want them to be. Right. My question is, is how far do you go against the big three without potentially doing uh, harm Sure. to the union at the end of the day. Well, there's harm. That's one of the unknowns and one of the unspokens. There is harm that is being now felt far, far deeper in some of the second and third tier, uh, third tier um, parts of Michigan. It's not just GM and Stellantis and Ford that are feeling the pinch. It's many of the suppliers, many of the creators, many of the manufacturing companies that supply to those companies who are now at a, st- at a, at a standstill. Because of this whole problem. And I I will admit, I am ill-equipped to talk on this subject with a le- any level of expertise because most of my career, frankly, has been centered around helping folks on the retirement side. That's my business, of course. Uh, but primarily on the salaried side. So, of course, I have some inherent biases that I have experienced. I don't know what it's like, you know, from the union side of the table. But some of the time, my frustration is that no one just says the obvious. Everyone's trying to be so diplomatic. They don't all say, look, there is a limit to how much we can pay for general labor. And much of it, frankly, is general labor. And as a GM stockholder, if you haven't made money for the last five years, that stock price is a dollar lower now than it was five years ago. So when they talk about record profits, you know, that's a bit of a buzzword. It's like uh, Obama saying Warren Buffett pays less taxes than his secretary. It's It's a bit of a misnomer. So the reality is, I wish everyone could talk in plain English and say, look, we're all hurting here, but you can't hold us hostage forever. Let's figure out how to get this done and get the sucker done. I feel like they're playing games. But what is the one shining light of this last weekend that while it has absolutely no business supplanting a story about, you know, dead people in Israel and and Palestine, for that matter, who are innocent and have been hurt, the one bit of joy we had was what? The Detroit Lions. Amen. There you go. How satisfying is it to be on the couch for a few hours and watch an organization that somehow or another has finally figured out how to look like professional men on a football field? Good decision-making, good leadership, humility when it's necessary, a little bit of arrogance that now is deserved every Sunday. And I can't wait until next week, which is the same feeling I had the previous week. I am very, very proud of the Detroit Lions and the people of Detroit. I'm not so proud to, that Eminem is our only ambassador. I don't know why they keep doing that with him. He's he's no Taylor Swift, but <laughs> <laughs> he's Detroit's it's Detroit's version of Taylor Swift. Well, that's pretty sad state of affairs. Isn't I mean, it? who else? Who else is he, who else are you going to go with? I'm sure I could think of a few. You Get can, back to me in the next Sean. segment, but I don't want Sean Bob Seger. Um... Who are we who are we going with here in Detroit? You know, I don't know, but I'll take I'll take um, Big Sean or 
or Bob Seger. There's a whole lot of good men and women that uh, I would rather have represent us, but it is what it is. I don't want to be a complainer. I'm happy to see those guys win. What else is on the agenda? Anything that we absolutely need to get through? We are going to hit McCarthy's story a little bit. Yep, I mean, he that. might be the first guy to ever sign his own uh, pink slip with his behavior and how that whole thing went down. But that throws the GOP into a tizzy. They really don't have a plan, which frankly has been the MO of the GOP now for the last four years, a group in power without a plan. And now they just look like they're, they're playing spin the bottle with leadership. The whole thing uh, with the GOP is kind of insane. Um, It's been uh, really a problem ever since, um, ever since the last election. Uh, the GOP has been kind of in a mess. Total mess. Well, listen, after the break, we're going to have Jonathan Savage on, Fox News contributor. He's going to give us a little bit more insight into what's happening over in Gaza and the outlook as it continues to get worse, frankly. We'll hear from him shortly. Back after the break. Well, despite the jazzy, restful music, it hasn't been a restful morning for many around the world. And now Israel has vowed to respond and respond they have. They're sending missiles. They're sending in uh, crews of, of IDF and infiltrating the borders, taking up many of the places in town that have been hit the hardest. On the line with us is Jonathan Savage, Fox News contributor and WJR um, correspondent. And Jonathan, this has been a a fairly swift response from Israel, and it looks as though they they mean business about getting some of these people back and restoring some order. How goes that so far? Yeah, they they do, Chris. Um, Israel getting, I think, more and more on, on a war footing. It says it's called up. 300,000 reservists. It says it's imposing a total blockade, a siege of the Gaza Strip. That means cutting off the supply of food, of fuel, water, electricity. Um, Many people say this uh, is pointing to the possibility of a ground assault on the territory. This following up on a bombardment from the air of, uh, they say, a thousand targets uh, on the ground in Gaza responding to the unprecedented um, events of the weekend, Israel's single biggest loss of life in generations. Yeah, Jonathan, reading this piece that you're commenting on now, one of the things that struck me, and I saw it last night on the news too, is there seems to be some kind of coordinated technological effort to send text messages ahead of time to some of these areas to help innocents on both sides escape the areas that, that are imminently going to be um, hit by missiles. How would the, how does that process work? This is something that Israel has done um, for some time, uh, and in, in many cases they appear to be still doing it now. Although, according to some on the ground in Gaza, it hasn't happened all the time. There have been some uh, unannounced um, missile firings. Um, I mean, Gaza is densely populated, one of the most densely populated areas on Earth. There's over two million people in a, 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 an area of 25 miles by six miles. And yet Israel has over the years shown really uh, incredible surgical ability to assassinate very specific targets. In recent years, using drone attacks, attaching GPS locators onto cars, even exploding cell phones uh, to assassinate um, terrorist leaders. Um, But they do have this ability to transmit to cell phones um, using tower triangulation uh, to anyone in the vicinity of, of something that is likely to be targeted. Um, and that is, I think, something that they do because it is so densely populated and they know that the, the pressure on them to minimize civilian life, even when they come under attack like this, is going to be great. 
And that civilian life certainly includes Palestinian innocent lives, too, I'm, I'm sure. What is the general attitude there amongst the locals who are now just caught up in this, many of whom I'm sure don't want it to be happening? Is there an, is there a, a hint that the, many of the Palestinian uh, folks that live in, in the Gaza Strip there also absolutely abhor this particular behavior and they would like it to end quickly? I think what they want is as close to a normal life as possible. Um, and they don't really have that because Israel controls what goes in and out. Um, it's According to recent surveys, maybe a little over half of the population of, of, of Gaza uh, and a similar amount in, in the West Bank do fully support Hamas. Um, it's possible that, that support is growing because of this, or at least coinciding with the severity of, of the blockade uh, by Israeli on the, of Israel on the, terrorist, on the territory. Um, Hamas does not recognize Israel uh, and and is, I would say, at the very most lukewarm about the two-state solution that is favored internationally. Um, I think it's fair to say that, that while not everyone in Gaza fully supports Hamas uh, and fully uh, wants to eradicate Israel as, as Hamas's leaders might do, there is growing support um, and probably a, 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 a slight increase in radicalization there too. Sure. And as the people then begin to flee, 123,000 people uh, supposedly have fled homes in Gaza. Where, Jonathan, are they going? By and large, most people are going to where to escape this attack? Well, while um, Gaza is incredibly densely populated, there are areas which are less densely populated, so they could head towards those that are more open areas. But also they are sheltering in public buildings such as, as schools, um, and religious venues, but they can only offer limited shelter, especially to 120 odd thousand people. Um, these are not are not places people could stay for for long periods of time. So they and the their humanitarian uh, sisters will be hoping that this situation ends as quickly and as peacefully as possible with uh, limited collateral damage. And, and as far as we can tell, so far. Amidst this violence, there hasn't really been negotiation talk as of yet, right? It's primarily just military action, having been back and forth now with Israel trying to recover anyone who's been taken across the border. Yes, um, some countries have sort of reached out to Israel and uh, and suggested that uh, asked if there's any chance they could they could come to the table, um, and Israel has shown no inclination to do so. I mean, the, the uh, literally and metaphorically, the wounds are incredibly raw. It's only a, two and a half days since uh, this incursion began. Uh, funerals are taking place as we speak uh, in Israel and and in Gaza. Um, the, the negotiations which may be taking place may involve the hostages. Uh, around 130 hostages were taken across the border by Gaza militants, uh, Hamas militants into Gaza from Israel. They include the elderly, women, children, um, probably to try to secure the release of prisoners uh, that are being held by Israel. Uh, and Qatar, um, in association with the United States, uh, has been reaching out to the two sides to try to start a negotiation process. But again, it doesn't feel that Israel is ready to start that at any serious level either. Sir, it certainly does feel, Jonathan, like this 
is going to last for at least a little while, and hopefully it doesn't get better or worse, rather, before it, it gets better. And in, in, in just closing out, then, has the border uh, that Israel experienced so much infiltration on, has that started to be kind of resealed, so to speak? Are they not, are they not seeing now the incursion that they did Saturday morning? Well, certainly the Israeli troops are doing their best, but as of even a, a few hours ago, they were not able to confirm that they completely sealed the border. Um, they're patrolling, they're trying to repair the fences, but it's possible that there's a network of tunnels under the fences. There could be uh, breaches that haven't been controlled over. So they can't be sure that, that militants and weapons aren't going back and forward still. But there's certainly an increasing number of soldiers in the area. The military presence is, is ramping up, uh, and I would expect that they would have a fairly decent grip over that within the next few hours. Okay. Well, in closing, and, and we do appreciate your support and your feedback on this this entire story, is there is there any feeling yet, it may be too early to play blame, is there any feeling that this is just a colossal failure of Israeli intelligence and, and the military in terms of how this attack was actually achieved? I mean, is there just real dissension among the Israeli population right now? How did you let this happen? I think there is disbelief. Um, I think there there may well be anger. But the anger at the moment is is not necessarily to, directed towards the government as yet. People expect that there will be a years-long inquiry into what happened because there is a military failure because the border was not secure and there's an intelligence failure because this must have been planned meticulously and over a long period of time. And Israel, with its huge investment in intelligence, somehow didn't pick up on any of it. Sure. Jonathan, again, thanks for your expertise. We will be taking calls on this subject. I know it hits home for a lot of people. There's much to say. 800-859-0957. Lines will be open. More guests on the way. The fighting rages on in the Middle East, and the fighting also rages on between the UAW and Stellantis and Ford and General Motors. Now it's been 25, 26 days and counting and on the line with us, we have the great Merrick Masters, business professor from Wayne State. Merrick, fill us in on where we're really going with this thing. I just read a quote from, uh, from Mr. Fain. In the last three weeks, we've moved these companies further than anyone thought possible. But the end doesn't seem to be in sight. Where are we at now? Well, I think across the three companies, the elements of the basic agreement have emerged there are gaps remaining, I would say, on wages in progression and retiree security issues. But if the companies are able to make sufficient progress on those three main issues, and I don't necessarily think it takes a whole lot of progress from where we are now across those three, plus address the issue of the union recognition status of battery plants at Ford and Stellantis, then you will have an agreement. But right now, a lot of those issues are going to be very thorny and difficult to sort out. And I don't think that we're on the cusp of an agreement. I think it's going to take some more time. And it may be necessary this week, certainly, for the UAW to ramp up things, particularly if insufficient progress is made at Ford and Stellantis. Is there, uh, Merrick, any dissension that you sense 
on the UAW side at this point, as Fane continues to, to perpetuate this to a large degree, I've seen that, that many of UAW workers have voted against some of the proposals, but is there a feeling settling in at all that this is starting to get stretched out longer than the expectation? And if so, does he start to back down? He's had some small victories or even big victories with the EV and the battery um, being, you know, one of the major feathers in their cap. How do they move forward from that? And at what point do the UAW workers start to say, okay, guys, enough is enough. We're getting, let, let's not look a gift horse in the mouth. I think you're absolutely right in that we will come to that tipping point in the not too distant future. I don't think we're there yet because he's made sufficient progress in negotiations across the three companies to give people hope that this strategy is going to work. Uh, and I think as long as they can see clear signs that progress is going to be made, they will continue to support this up to a limit before they say, basically, you know, we've had a, a fair number of workers already out for four weeks, six weeks, whatever the case might be. That's just too long. We've got to ratchet up the pressure and get this over with. I think that this week he probably is going to, unless he sees considerable progress across all three companies, he's going to have to stick to his strategy of calling a conference on Friday and saying he's going to make an announcement then, unless he really is on the cusp of a tentative agreement and doesn't want to upset that at this point in time. Is, you know, and this is highly subjective, of course, but is the attitude that you've picked up of the average UAW worker that Sean Fane is is a hero of these folks? Is he picking up the sword and uh, in a Braveheart-style move leading this campaign towards something that's really um, wholehearted? Or is there has there been doubts about the way that he's gone about this in terms of, you know, incurring different pain points at different spots? This is a very newfound way of doing this kind of strike, and it's caught everybody a little bit by surprise. It seems to be effective in the sense that it's pushing negotiations to points that they haven't um, seen in the past. What is the general attitude of the average UAW worker in your estimation? Well, you can only infer that by what you don't hear. Um, and what you don't hear are reports of a lot of dissent. What you hear are reports from various people who've been on the picket lines and who observe the social media that workers may grumble about certain things. They'd like a little more transparency here and there. For example, they'd like to know a little bit more about the details of whether workers will be paid the same under the national master agreement at the joint ventures as they are at regular production sites. But those details and nuances aside, I think people are generally satisfied. They see this as a good strategy that's minimized the hardship on the union by reducing the number of workers who are out on strike. The companies are still paying for their health care, uh, which is good from their point of view and the union's point of view. Mm -hmm. And also progress is being made at the negotiating table. But as I indicated, there's a limit to people's tolerance of this. And you will rapidly approach that as you get beyond a month. And this week, we will have been four weeks that some of the workers will have been out on strike. Sure. So, American, this is fantastic um, glimpse into this thing from your point of view. There has to be, I would think, one or maybe two, but let's just concentrate on one item on each side that they probably should concede on at some point. Is there any obvious 
a point of contention from General Motors to Atlantis and Ford, and then, you know, subsequently from the UAW, that seems like a fairly easy hurdle to jump over to bring this thing to closure. One that they, you know, probably should say, okay, fine, we give up. That's, well, you know, it's not a hill I'm going to die on. What is their hill that they should not die on on each side? Well, I think for the companies, they can probably give a little bit more in wages. Uh, if they don't have to give in retiree health care and in defined benefit pension plans, those are things that I think that they pretty much have to draw the line on. If they give those things back, they're going to balloon their liability sheets and put themselves in a real competitive disadvantage. Um, I have asked this question in my own mind uh, when you are negotiating and you give something that's major like GM did about the joint ventures, um, you usually ask for something in return. And I'm wondering what they got in return. Mm. If they didn't ask for something in return, then, you know, I would ask, well, who's doing their negotiations? Um, Certainly when you give a big concession like that, you accept reciprocation. And what the UAW has succeeded in doing so far is that it's been negotiating, forcing each company to bargain against itself and come forward with concessions without it having to make a concession. Yeah. So, you know, Merrick, in the the world of football, every Monday morning, we get to read the grades of of the quarterback and of the defense and of the coaching and of the cornerbacks and so on and so forth. In your estimation now at this stage, almost a month in, does anybody have an A or a B or a C when we when we talk about Mr. Farley at Ford or, or Mary Barrett GM or Sean Fain for that matter? Is there any standout in performance that's happening here in your mind? Well, I think on the company side, I would actually give some credit to Stellantis for being above board and honest throughout this and saying it has its own needs and interests and being very direct about that. Um, and not trying to sugarcoat things. Um, But the companies are in an awkward position because the UAW has leveraged the advantages that it has at this time under the pressure they are for electrification to exploit the situation. And the companies are between a rock and a hard place because they're stuck with the policy of having to pursue electrification regardless of the costs. And that is a keenly competitive environment in which they are entering. Right. Well, that's, that's, yeah. What a, what a tangled web in general. Merrick, we appreciate your feedback. We would love to hear from you. We do have Marie coming up after the break, a little follow-up on Israel, but we do want to get to some of your calls and your thoughts, not only on what's happening in the UAW, but what's happening in Israel. 800-859-0957. Back in just a brief few minutes. Well, fighting continues in Israel following attacks by Hamas militants over the weekend that left hundreds dead, thousands more injured. Israelis are trying to come to grips with the enormity of the attack, struggling to find normalcy in their daily lives. WGR senior news analyst Marie Osborne spoke with a woman who lives near Tel Aviv and tells us her life has taken a dramatic turn. Hi, Chris. Yes, her life has taken a dramatic turn in just the matter of days. Galit Benzur, Dr. Galit Benzur, lives with her 11-year-old daughter in the city of Ramat Gan, that's near Tel Aviv. She says they awoke early Saturday morning to the sounds of the emergency sirens, and she says everyone ran for their shelters in terror. 
She says she and others are now having trouble wrapping their minds around what's happened. And they just slaughtered people there. I mean, the numbers are crazy, and I'm sure we are not being told exactly what is going on and the exact numbers. At this point, we're talking about 700 people murdered and more than uh, 3,000 wounded, but we know that a lot of them are critically injured. She says normalcy is just non-existent right now. We don't have school. The kids are locked at home. We were told, you know, to try to avoid because you're afraid to go outside. If you go outside and you have a siren, where would you run? And Galit says Israelis are now stepping up to do all they can to help. People don't have a place to be. So we have hotels and you have good families who are hosting them. This is terrible, Marie. We... We, we've never had this thing before. It's even worse than Yom Kippur. It's our 9-11. And she is there referring to the Yom Kippur War of 50 years ago. As for help from the U.S., she says they are grateful, but she says a lot more needs to be done. The U.S., yeah, we saw the press conference and we saw President Biden and we know that uh, America and the U.S. is the best ally, but still... The world needs to know about this horror. We, we have never, and, and this is a terrorist movement with whom we are supposed to have any negotiations. And Chris, uh, Dr. Bedsour uh, teaches at Bar Ilan and Open University, and she was also our intern here at WJR 20 mm. years ago. Yeah, it, Marie, it's an incredible story. It is so unbelievably sad to watch the horror that's just happening in the streets and this has been happening for all of my lifetime and certainly all of yours you have me by just a couple of years Mm -hmm. it's sad to know somebody i'm sure that's been thrust into that what in your opinion is the greatest problem that we have in terms of, of of picking a position of support you see biden for example come out with a statement so many of the american Politicians are standing in solidarity with Israel. But then there's certainly some detractors from that. There's people who say on the other side, listen, this has been going on for a hundred or more years. The the apartheid, the occupation, they don't recognize Israel. And naturally, when Hamas is such a violent power that doesn't seem to have respect for the law of military and the rules of engagement, how does this get solved in our lifetime? Is this an opportunity for Israel to go in and kind of squash this once and for all? You know, Galit said it so well. She said, um, how are we supposed to negotiate with this? Uh, because, you know, she calls this, of course, a terror group that has done this. And so she says, how are we supposed to negotiate with this? I, you know, I do believe just in journalism, we're always taught there are two sides to every story, if not three or four. And so it's important uh, for us to perhaps listen better to one another to hear what we have to say about this. There's no question, though, that everybody is in agreement on this point that what happened over the weekend absolutely cannot happen ever. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So, right. I mean, we can we can start there. But um, again, there is certainly uh, if we were better listeners, I don't know, maybe we could do a better job of helping solve some of our plot problems. Sure. So much pain and so much horror. I mean, we remember, um, you know, not that long ago in a relative sense, 9-11 and seeing the, the horror on people's faces, especially in a country that 
has not had to experience real fear in so, so, so long. I mean, you go from 9-11 really back to, um, you know, the, the threat of atomic weapons back in during World War II and kids doing under the, the desk drills in school and what would happen if we had to get to a storm cellar and how we survive. Now, we, we don't experience fear much as Americans uh, the same way that these folks in that area of the world do. And whether they're right or wrong, I mean, the, the, the stories of subhuman conditions in the Gaza Strip with nearly 2 million people living there, I mean, shoulder to shoulder, many of them just perpetually in constant governmental limbo. Who is really in charge and who we get our resources and infrastructure yeah. from? And the freedom of religion aspect, it's easy to forget about the very basic parts of this argument, one of which is, why can't we just have someone who's fair and, and kind, in, in a loving sense, in charge of this region? Why, why is there such a resistance from the Palestinian um, residents of that area to just letting Israel rule that? I mean, it's, it's an overly obvious question, but I still never see hear a really good answer besides, hey, it used to be ours, we want it back. And, but I don't, I mean, that's part of the problem is that this is an ancient uh, disagreement. This is an ancient, uh, uh, this goes back centuries as to why this is the way it is today. And, and it's obviously passed down from generation to generation. The hatred, the distrust um, is passed down from generation to generation. So, um, look, the Israelis are saying, you know, we just want to live in peace, too. We want to go about our lives without having to worry about the emergency sirens going off. Um, and certainly uh, the, the Arab side of this also has uh, a story to tell. There's no doubt. Mm. Well, Marie, thanks for your, your input on that story. I'm sure that that breaks your heart that someone that you knew so well um, is in that position. I, I think we, we could take a chance to, to remember how blessed we are, despite the, the, the tribalism that we have on our own soil here in the U.S. with the very divisive polarizing politics and the nonsense that gets thrown around. None of us woke up this morning to the sound of sirens as we were trying to make it to work. Absolutely. And we need to remember that very well said. We do. Thanks, Marie. We, we, we will Thank take you. calls on this. I know after the break at 1 o'clock, there was a few people waiting. 800-859-0957 is the phone number here. You're free to text that, too, and, and Mr. Dave Rieger can read some of those off and we can discuss. It is a very, very hard time to unpack many of those things as we, you know, we want to be supportive of the things that we believe. And I think all of us universally believe that innocent men, women, and children Certainly not necessarily in that order. Children come to mind first. Uh, the, the terror of something like this for something that seems on the surface so simple as whose land is whose should never be a thing. Heartbreaking to watch, and we hope that ends. Certainly the comments about the, the UAW and Mr. Masters filled this in the best he could. This has to end, too. I mean, these companies have been making a whole lot of money for a long time, and the great men and women of Michigan who, had, who put slapped those cars together and make it happen, need to be rewarded fairly. But there's a lot to unpack there, and the effects of this will be felt for a long, long time. Dave Rieger, did you get anything out of the Merrick Masters interview that I perhaps did not catch? I think that it's just, um, you know, a an ongoing process, but I think that uh, I'm, I agree with you. I think that uh, I, here's what I worry about. I worry about that Sean Fain goes too far uh, pushing the big three, and it ends up hurting the UAW in the end. This That's what I worry about. Yeah. Let's get it fixed, folks. 
We should all be in agreement on something at some point here relatively soon and move on because there is too much hurt in the world to not let the uh, the kindness take over and come to an agreement. Back after the break. Emotions and opinions running rampant. Uh, the, the reports on the attack in Israel and what's happening in the Middle East and then the UAW. I know people have been waiting on the lines and we love that. 800-859-0957. We want to get everybody included. Let's take a trip to the phones. Tommy out in Troy. What's going on, Tommy? Hey, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Good, good. Yeah, um, this is very disturbing, you know. Um, and it's like what I was telling your screener. Um, imagine if you know, like after this happened, Joe Biden held a he held a barbecue on the White House lawn, and um, imagine if George Walker Bush after nine eleven held a barbecue on the White House, you know, at the White House after 9-11, like, he would have been scorched. He would have just been, no more George Bush Jr., you know, he would have been gone. But Biden and his administration, they get a pass for some reason. It's like, does this guy even know what's happening in the world? Um, This is the worst thing that happened to Israel. It's like, it it was like our 9-11 to them. And... We're, you know, and Biden's having a barbecue. Like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. This guy doesn't know Monday from Wednesday. It's like, it's just unbelievable to me. Well, Tommy, I I hear what you're saying. The man's got to eat, but you probably don't want to do it on camera, uh, you know, with a a red and white apron on having a hot dog. What, What do you think his appropriate response should be and should have been and how quickly does it need to come? to um, relieve himself of the responsibility of maybe being late to the party. Well, he's, he's, he's just too arrogant. He's going to, he's going to run the whole way until he is not the nominee. He's going to go. He's not going to step down. All right. Listen, I I hear you. Biden's going to be scrutinized, but not nearly as much as, as some Republicans in the past have been scrutinized in some of these situations. Your point yeah. is your point is heard. Brad and, and Rochester Hills, what, uh, Brad, you've been waiting the longest, pal. Thanks for holding on. What, what say you? Yeah, I, I, I took a break, and I called you back for a second that time around. I just thought I'd well, let you know that uh, this uh, warfare that's been going on in Israel the last three days, uh, including today, it's uh, a spiritual warfare, uh, and mainly, and as well as a political, which comes uh, second. It's... Uh, you know, the Jews, uh, God's chosen people, have always uh, been at uh, odds uh, with uh, Palestine, uh, the Muslims that try to uh, control that and seize the land, and it's uh, just flat out getting worse. It makes me wonder how long it's going to be until our Lord, Savior, and Messiah, Jesus, is going to return to get it all straightened out. Brad, hmm. that sounds eerily reminiscent of a conversation I had with my mother not that long ago. But I here's my question to you, and that's a it's an interesting point. Do do we uh, in the United States, you know, oftentimes now I'm sorry I'm digressing. Oftentimes yeah, we ahead. we find ourselves in a position where we were founded as a very Christian nation with freedom of religion being uh, really one of the tent poles of of how this country was founded and why it was founded uh, to escape the, the persecution. But now we find the ourselves. The First Amendment guarantees that, and that cannot be taken away from us as uh, uh, Christians and as as well as uh, Jews. Uh, 
that practice their Christian faith as well as uh, Jews with their Judaism. And the same right, Brad, could be said for for Islamic people in the United States, many of whom follow their own religion and are, are plenty peaceful. Certainly there's a ra- radical element to that. But are we at a crossroads where are we sticking by Israel? And this is one of the things that we're going to begin to hear now from people who feel that the only reason that we're sticking up for Israel, besides being a military um asset and ally of ours is because of the founding faith. They are God's chosen people. We were started as a Christian nation. Do we have a disproportionate amount of compassion for their problems? They're a very advanced, well-funded nation. Should they be handling this primarily on their own? What do you think? Well, there's a good point that you just made here. Fortunately, there is a, a certain band of uh, Jews and Christians together. It, it mainly is the Christians that are helping these certain Jews. This is a one nonprofit organization that helps the Jewish uh, people that are in uh, um, that are undergoing persecution, especially in Ukraine. Uh, Rabbi Yael Eckstein, who's the president of the old International Fellowship for Christians and Jews, they're the home base is in Chicago, but they've got another uh, uh, office in our nation's capital. And, you know, they do a fantastic job. They're donors. Uh, I used to be a donor at one time and gave a few uh, free will gifts uh, back in the day, uh, back in late 2000s. And I think they still do a fantastic job of helping the Jewish people uh, get get relief uh, as much as possible. Yeah. And, you know, Brad, I appreciate your your insight. If this thing continues to drag on, it won't be but a few weeks until dissension begins amongst the American people, many of whom will say, look, we've had your back and you've had ours. But but really, this is not an us problem. And, you know, one thing we haven't discussed, and we're going to get into it a little bit when we talk about the just the disaster zone of the GOP and McCarthy being evacuated or shown the door, so to speak. But who who is one of the greatest, Dave Rigger? This is an interesting point. We didn't talk about this before. One of the greatest uh, benefactors of this this problem that's happening right now in Israel has to be Vladimir Putin. Probably, yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the one thing he would love to see happen is that the U.S. aid that has been traveling to you to Ukraine, the billions and billions of dollars in war assets and war heads and ammunition that has been free flowing from the United States and has been now for months a point of contention, uh, especially with the harder line on the right. They're saying, stop this. We can't just continue to give them stuff. Well, now, all of a sudden, this is a very binary situation where if Israel needs that help, too. Who is our better alloy or Right. I mean, is our better alloy um, Israel or do they become now the the primary um, the benefactor of U.S. assets? We don't. That remains to be seen. That's a great question. Um, I, I don't know. That, and, you know, that, on, that, that is that is a good question. We've been given uh, we've been giving uh, constant support to Ukraine throughout this whole conflict. And now Israel also is going to probably need some help. We've already sent stuff over there. So sure. that's that, that if, if it comes down to a uh, which one are you going to do? I, I don't know. It's a great question. And certainly Israel is far more well-funded internally and has a much, much more streamlined military. Of course. They should be able to handle quite a bit of this on their own. But if it gets prolonged, you yeah. never know. And that's not to mention that there's still, I think there's 38 or 39 days left for 12 appropriation bills to be passed. Um, and this whole thing with the GOP losing McCarthy now has put a chokehold on that entire process, one of right. which is the massive funding bill that has been intended for in Ukraine, Ukraine that may end up being held up. Not to mention the fact that you are you're going to be facing in uh, a period of time 
another possible government shutdown too, because they just they just prolonged it for a little bit of time. So, yeah, I don't has a shutdown. When was the last time a real shutdown happened for any length of time? It's been a minute. Yeah, constant threats. There's not. They don't seem to ever actually shut it down unless they all want to go on vacation on private jets <laughs> and have lobster tails in the Hamptons. Or whatever that could it's is a valid that they point. do. It's a valid point. Right? Maybe they should take an actual break and not get paid for it. I would like that part quite a bit. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, the union workers are getting paid to, to, to take a break while they kind of hang out. And and that's not a slight on the union workers, but good grief. We all need to just get back to the table and do some work. I know we got the phone lines ringing. Keep in mind, when we get into that subject matter about the McCarthy vacancy Jim Jordan and others are running. It's going to be a fascinating thing to see how that unfolds. And we'll have Ryan Schmelz on here in a little bit who will fill us in. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Back to your calls to 800-859-0957. Oh, my goodness is all I can say. You know, the, the fun of being a radio host is supplanted entirely by the, the necessity of the news cycle. And today it's been dominated really by the Israel story. The calls are about the Israel story. I, I understand why. We talked to UAW a little bit. We're going to hopefully get into the GOP blockade, if you will, after uh, McCarthy's ouster here shortly. But let's go back to the phones and make sure that we are being fair to everyone who's willing to hold on. Vincent Northville, you have some insight onto the big problem that may be headed our way. What is that, my friend? Basically, you're looking at global war. And let me explain why. Every time the Israelis have gone up against the Palestinians and start kicking their butt thoroughly, We always send a peace delegation over from the U.S. to say, okay, guys, you've made your point. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Well, what has happened on Saturday? There's going to be no peace delegation. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Benjamin Netanyahu has taken the gloves off. He's activated every military-aged Israeli in Israel. He is going to roll over the Palestinians, and he's going to start killing tens of thousands of them. And what's going to happen is the United States is going to ask him to stop. And he's going to tell the United States, nope, we are going to kill the next generation of terrorists. They're going to try to kill us. And he is going to wipe them out in one fail swoop. Mm -hmm. This is going to trigger a global jihad with every Muslim nation across the world. When they start seeing Palestinians stacked up like cordwood, What's going to happen is they are going to rally the cry. Every Muslim nation from Jordan, Egypt, Iran are going to descend on Israel. And I'm telling you what, you better tell your kids to get ready for war. Because now we just pulled the carrier group out of the coast of Taiwan. Vince, listen. What kind of message did we just send China? Your, you can take Taiwan now. Your fear, Vince, is rational and it's fractional compared to the men and women and the kids who are on the ground in the Middle East who are experiencing this firsthand. Well said. Uh, as we as we unpack all this, a lot of it comes down to the funding of this and the aid that we're going to be able to help. And I am very interested to talk to Ryan Schmelz, who's a Fox News correspondent. And, and Ryan, everything that's been going on in the GOP, this has got to be now on the present in terms of a, a circumstance that wouldn't be, have been prevented by, but certainly this is going to be weighing heavily on the GOP's mind as they try and find someone to fill the vacated McCarthy role. What say you? Speaker McCarthy just speaking to the press not too long ago, a couple like about an hour ago, and he was very adamant that 
you know, this is a huge problem. And he's looking at the fact that, you know, what if we didn't have the government open right now? What if we didn't, uh, you know, we were, if we had troops that were supposed to be tasked with the, our national security who didn't get, you know, the money they had when we have these terrorist attacks going on? And, and certainly he used that as an opportunity to kind of swipe at those who, you know, were angry at him for deciding to, to keep the government open. So it certainly is something that's being discussed quite uh, extensively within Republican circles for sure. Yeah, Ryan, and listen, let, let's talk to us all like we're kids and we don't really understand the inner workings or the finer points of, of the government. Everyone knows that McCarthy got booted and, and in some ways, based on the, the policy that he agreed to come in under, where does it stand now? How soon can they get somebody in there? What does that actual process look like? And who's the front runner at this moment to take over the chair? So what we're looking at right now is we are looking at a conference meeting happening tonight behind closed doors. Then they will have a candidate form likely tomorrow uh, behind closed doors as well. And then Wednesday, they are expected to elect their speaker candidate. And then on Thursday, they are expected to have the, the, the public vote before the House of Representatives, which is the formal process they normally do. And you have uh, Jim Jordan, who's from the state to the south of you. Uh, who is one of the candidates, and you also have Steve Scalise, the majority leader. And these two candidates are certainly racking up the endorsements. They're the only ones who are declared. But there are some who would like to see Speaker McCarthy reinstated. So there's a lot of talks and a lot of rumblings, and Speaker McCarthy kind of danced around that question when he was pressed about it earlier. But he did tell Hugh Hewitt that he's up for it if, uh, if, if, he, if you know, he has the backing of his conference. Yeah, Ryan, you know, in my talks with the Little Birdie, one of them had mentioned that one of the items up for um, inclusion was the idea that anybody going into the seat, should they take it over from McCarthy and he doesn't, you know, get you know, reelected, so to speak, might include language that does not allow for this kind of thing to happen again. Have you seen that also? Yes, yes, they have. I, I've, I've spoken to several sources. We've had, I think, a couple stories that have aired with uh, interviews with members of Congress where we've talked about, you know, what what needs to change. And you have a number of them who are pushing for fundamental changes to the motion of vacate. You know, some of them aren't opposed to having it there. They just would like to make it a little bit tougher for you to be able to remove the Speaker of the House rather than having just one person come up and issue the motion. And next thing you know, we're having a vote on the House floor. Um, that's some of the things we've seen talked about where we're seeing Republicans who are standing onto a letter to say that they want to see a, uh, the threshold uh, to be voted out of conference as the speaker uh, changed so that when, in fact, they select a speaker of the House, they do not run into the issues that McCarthy had where they're voting 15 rounds over and over again. You have to have that required number voted out of conference. So therefore, they have to air all of their dirty laundry, as one lawmaker told me out of uh, right. pretty much in private. What was that threshold during McCarthy's event and what are they proposing that it should be? Do you know? I, I don't I don't I'm not quite sure what the number was. I believe it was around that 212 mark, which was not the majority. So he still needed uh, some people to say no to him and he, he, it, it wouldn't reach there. That's why you saw 15 rounds go over and over again. So they want to hash this out behind closed doors so that when they come before the House floor, they likely have some type of unified front and they can move on. Okay, so here, Ryan, with your insider knowledge, without mocking anybody on the floor, is there a collective eye-rolling to any degree over Matt Getz's kind of grandstanding and just seemingly this his insatiable desire to be in front of the camera while he has not yet dealt with his own personal demons that have just gone on for more than a year? I wouldn't know if there's any eye rolling going on. I think it's more like blatant anger towards him. I mean, it's not hard for us to be able to find a member of Congress who's willing to come on one of our shows or do an interview with us where they get the opportunity to just criticize Matt Gates. 
And you're seeing that from a number of different Republicans, moderates who aren't loyal to former President Trump. You've got people who've endorsed President Trump who are very hostile towards Matt Gates right now. He's got he has angered a lot of people with the party. And I don't think it's much of a secret either, because though plenty of them have been airing this out out in the public. Yeah, good grief. Okay, so Jim Jordan has always been a bit of a YouTube lightning rod. You know, he he likes to do his own bit of grandstanding on the things that he that he takes. Now, the, with all these allocations and bills that still need to be passed, like you know, when the one um, in particular, let me check my notes here. But I mean, the the National Defense Act or the Defense Authorization Act, that's got a lot of funding issues in it that the hard right kind of MAGA folks have really been looking for amendments on, and that has been bounced back and forth. At, at what point does everyone come together here and say, let's just get past the, the, the stuff yeah. and get to the nitty gritty? So, so, so the NDAA has already been passed by the House. Um, it has been passed by the Senate. They look radically different. As you can imagine, the, the NDAA was a very conservative NDAA in the House version. It was more of a bipartisan Senate. So you have a group of negotiators who are meeting uh, pretty much picked from the House side and picked from the Senate side. Uh, and I think, you know, Democrats and Republicans both get the staff, you know, whoever they want. And they're meeting and they're going to try to negotiate an NDAA that they feel makes both sides happy and, and can pass Congress. So uh, that's something that's still going on. I think that the top line number is kind of a dead deal where, you know, we know we're looking at over $800 billion in military spending and, and something like that. Yeah, yes, they cannot move on it until uh, there's a speaker chosen. But, you know, some of the sources I've talked with on that are still kind of confident as long as this speaker battle doesn't drag on forever. Does that, Ryan, does that bill, now that the Israel conflict is is obviously going full throttle, has that created any level of urgency at the federal level to get a new speaker in the chair because it's going to matter? Yes. No, no, there actually absolutely is a is a, uh, a push right now. Speaker McCarthy was saying this is this is wrong, that we don't have a speaker of the House right now. And we're dealing with something like this. You know, he needs to be organizing who gets security clearance and who's able to be in these classified briefings right now. So it certainly is a major concern for uh, former Speaker McCarthy and the, everyone else. Ryan, love it. The speed and the expertise is unparalleled. Thanks for joining us. Hey, listen, we're going to give everybody a break when we get back and we're going to talk about something passionate. How about a little bit of Lions after the break? See you in a few. Okay, so taking a well-deserved break from Israel and the GOP and the UAW, good grief, isn't it fun to find yourself on the couch at 1 p.m., which more and more now is going to become 425 and 8 p.m. to watch our Detroit Lions do something other than give away football games. Sean, you on there with me, man? Yeah, it's a pleasure, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, you know, depending on your age, we've seen a little bit of everything. And, and I'll tell you what, this is something new. This is a deep competent, confident football team. And I am really enjoying every second of it, Chris. Thanks for having me. I, I love having you. And I tell you what, I, as a diehard Honolulu blue Kool-Aid drinker, I have been through the same pain and suffering. My brother just wrote a piece in the Atlantic a few weeks ago about what it's like being a Lions fan, a massive departure from him, you know, with his political background. And it's, it's hilarious to read the, the reminiscings of, of a guy who grows up wanting so badly to see your team win, only to have essentially buffoon after buffoon after buffoon run the team from the GM office. I, one thing I can't get over before we get into the game yesterday, I have become semi-addicted to watching Dan Campbell's daily conferences. 
<laughs> Honestly, he he is a character. There's he, no doubt about that. He was like um, Stone Cold Steve Austin with uh, a little bit of Barack Obama in in terms of his uh, art- articulation of the football world. He he, I have never really seen in my lifetime a Detroit Lions coaching staff be able to get behind a microphone and humbly vulnerably, honestly, patiently deal with every one of those reporters in the room and talk about why they're confident, why they're hurting, where they need to be, and constantly be available. It is really, really impressive what Brad Holmes has done. Oh, it, it's it's amazing. I, you know, and, and credit goes to both of those guys. I think Brad Holmes, I've never seen depth like this in my entire lifetime. Even the good teams in the 90s, including the 91 team that went 12-4, and four, won the Central Division, and, of course, has the only playoff one. I've never seen depth like that. And Dan Campbell, to turn the culture of this franchise around. Chris, I'm sure you know this. Uh, The culture wasn't only bad amongst the fan base. So often it, it was... It was bad, whether it be at the Silverdome, whether it be at Ford Field, and, of course, that beautiful facility in Allen Park. And, and Dan Campbell has completely turned that culture around. It is a culture of winning. It is a culture of team. And they're showing it on the football field right now. They are. And that is one of the, the coolest things uh, I saw recently was the clip the other day of the guys at practice doing push-up drills. And a couple of the, uh, the rookies were, were lagging behind and really having a problem finishing. And some of the vets dropped down and started doing those push-ups with them because they wanted to finish as a unit and cheering each other on. They don't have to do that. They know they're being filmed somewhere, somehow. But these guys have bought in, and it is a heck of a lot of fun. We're seeing names like the Cam Suttons, for example, and like Jerry Jacobs, who was, boy, that guy was getting beat up and picked on so much that, I mean, all those pass interference calls week after week after week, and you say, geez, get this guy off the team. And now he's everybody's hero with three interceptions in the last two days. Yeah, everybody's stepping up. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is a total team effort. And, you know, you think of where this franchise was just a couple years ago and where this franchise is today. It is amazing that they've been able to turn it around and and, uh, making plays is infectious. You know, I've heard guys say that for years. My broadcast partner, Lomas Brown, uh, he would tell you that when you see a guy make a play, it becomes infectious. Everybody wants to make a play. And the Lions are certainly infected right now, and this is one infection I, I, I hope they don't find the antidote for. I do, too. Okay, so let's just break it down real fast. Really, really good win um, yesterday over a fairly weak Carolina team. What a Carolina team that's got some spunk. I mean, they, they made it look easy, but it surely, certainly wasn't as easy. Next two weeks, we go into Tampa Bay uh, Sunday. That game has been flexed. Um, it's funny. One of my, one of my brothers bought tickets for that game cause he was going to be working in Florida with all his buddies and it got flexed and now he can't go to the game cause he can't find a flight to get home that late at night. So, at, oh, what a bummer. Yeah, a bummer. I know for, <laughs> so like, let's call it four thirty Sunday afternoon. Do you expect to win in Tampa? I know they're, they're going to be favorites in terms of Vegas odds. What do you see? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, here's the thing about Tampa. I mean, listen, I I think they are a model of the National Football League right now. And and what I mean by that is there is a giant midsection of teams in the National Football League that, uh, Chris, with no other way to say it, you never know what you're going to get from them uh, from week to week. And I think that Tampa's in that. Yes, they're in first place in, in, you know, what is not a very good division, but it it isn't exactly like they've been world beaters. And, you know, the NFL to me is in three categories. You've got the, the teams near the top and definitely the Detroit Lions are in there. 
And, and then you've got a bunch of teams in the middle. And I think Tampa is, is smack dab in the middle where, you know, you can sell hope to, to your fan base. And, and then you've got some teams at the bottom that are just scrabbling and looking to make the turnaround, you know, much like the, the Lions had uh, in the past couple of years. But Baker Mayfield is the poster child for that, which I'm talking about. You never know which Baker Mayfield you're going to get from week mm-hmm. to week. That has been his story in his entire career. They don't particularly run the ball well, but if that passing game is on, they can cause a little damage. You know, you still sure. have a guy in in Mike Evans, and, and, and Chris Godwin is, is a heck of a player yet. But uh, listen, no doubt about it, the Lions should go into this one uh, feeling pretty good uh, about their chances of winning down in Tampa. Yeah, and then the Baltimore game, and then, of course, we have a Monday night game against the Raiders. There's a good chance we go into the bye with with seven or more wins, which, I mean, good grief. If you were to ask Dan Campbell a year ago, hey, listen, 2023, with what you're seeing trend-wise, how will you feel satisfied? This has got to be better than what they expected, and it's been a heck of a fun journey to watch. We won't bring Dave Rieger into this because he's a Broncos fan, and we don't really care what he has to say. But, you know, he wants to be pessimistic, but I refuse. And hope, you brought up the word hope, Sean. Hope, yeah. you know, hope is the, is the greatest and the, and, the, and the worst thing in the world. It is the catalyst of, of every big revival and every redemption story. And you can never give up. But it's also the thing that can take your heart and throw it on the ground and stomp on it every single Sunday for about 16 weeks in a row. The, the Lions are playing great right now. Sean knows we've discussed. They're playing wonderful right now. A nice win against Kansas City. My worry for the Lions is their depth of wide receiver, number one, which Sean I think would agree with, and number two, um, I think they're probably what the, the third best team in the NFC right now, behind the Niners and the uh, Eagles. I put them ahead of the Cowboys now. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, I, I think you could make the argument that that you know they they could knock off Philly. I I think San Francisco is head and shoulders above everybody else right now. You know, there there doesn't seem to be a weakness. But Dave, I'll, I'll say this about the re- receiving core, and this is a guy that that I was talking about in the off season quite a bit. I, I think this wide receiving core is better and deeper than people think. Yeah, and Chris, one of the guys, especially early on that we saw yesterday is, is the guy that, that I talked about a lot in the off season. I think Khalif Raymond is a heck of a player. Oh, and, man. and I don't think that, yeah. I don't think that he's gotten the due that he deserves. And, you know, early in that game yesterday, he had some big receptions, but, you know, my guess is Amon Ra will be back next week. I think we know about Josh Reynolds. Khalif Raymond is a guy that I, I think he's scratching the surface. So, you know, this team has really taken on a next man up mentality. And, and more important than that, they've lived it. Whoever the next man up is, is stepping in and making plays right now. So it's been pretty fun to watch. Right. And we need as Michiganders, as as Detroit metro area people, and, and certainly out to the West Coast and up north, we need to revel in the fact that we get to enjoy our Sundays with a little less anxiety and a little less frustration later in the day, a little less heartburn. Go for our Detroit Lions. We'll be back after the break. We'll check in with Chris Wemrick, see what's on his menu for the day, and toss around a couple things. Well, I will say that was a lively day full of stories that I did not know that I'd have to try to be a pseudo-expert in. I still am not an expert. Two hours later, I am fundamentally confused by some of the issues that plague the Middle East. I'm 46 years old. I don't get it. We talked to Marie. She doesn't entirely get it. What we know is there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of fear 
Chris Wemwick just sitting down about to take over. And this is not the kind of thing you want to cover every day because there just is no answer. And as more disturbing news comes out, the obvious questions, why can't we all just get along, kind of get lost in the mix, don't they? Yeah, make make love, not war. Right. Yeah, a whole lot of platitudes seem fitting right now. At what point do the Palestinians that are stuck in that zone say, you know what, we have tried to create our own government. It didn't work. We're relying on Hamas. They're insane. In the meantime, Israel is a very high-functioning country that has different beliefs fundamentally in the religious um, sense of, the, of the, the border there. But why can't they all just settle down? Is it just going back so far? Is it so tribalized? Is it so polarized in terms of religious tenant that they can't simply get along because people are dying? Yes, 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 and yes. And more. Crazy. I mean, when, when Hamas won the, 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 as the prevailing government in Gaza in the mid-2000s, you know, the, the international stage didn't recognize them, and they had to take it by force. So right away, they were off to a, 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 a consequential start. And now we're getting word that Hamas says if these attacks on Gaza don't stop without warning, then they're going to start executing these hostages. You know who doesn't execute hostages? A government. Yeah. A government recognized by by human beings that have any sense of civility whatsoever. That is the most confounding thought to think that we are reliant on a well-known terrorist organization to run our hopefully future country. I just can't get past that part. I understand that there is a long, long history of hurt and suffering and apartheid, and there is certainly uh, fear that if we don't stand behind Israel, um, we're not doing our we're not doing our duty. But mm-hmm. good Lord, I hope this doesn't go on. Well, you got the Gerald Ford going over to the Mediterranean. I mean, this is this is this is now going th- these next. You know, the coming weeks, the coming years are going to be very precarious for the United States. I mean, I mean, think about what's at stake. You've got Russia and Ukraine happening. This 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 thing that's hanging over our head with China and Taiwan continues to be an issue. The the many military experts are pointing to 2024, 2025, where China is going to try to take Taiwan back. And now we've got this flaring back up again in the Middle East. The United States, they have no choice. They're going to side with Israel as being one of our largest and most important allies. But but what I find, I guess, not shocking and not surprising, but you've got factions of American representatives that just won't denounce this or they won't they won't they won't side with America. And that's really shocking when you yeah, consider the comments are going to get. She's I mean, get beat up hard the, the, we've that. seen them from a, a lot of folks uh, in the squad. But 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 it, it's more broad than that. I mean, yes, there's loss of life. I mean, this is this is a tragedy all, all the way across the board. And in the name of what? Yeah. In the name of religion, in the name of land. In the, what, wait, what do we? What well, is religion as a as an entity is responsible for some of the most inhumane behavior in the history of mankind, the Crusades included. Um, that is a hard, hard thing, a hard pill to swallow, regardless of what side of the fence you fall on. So, let's, let's when you switch. start talking about, about real quick though about innocent people, that's where you have to draw the line, right? If you want to fight as militaries and you want to attack 
you know, military outposts, mm-hmm. fine. But when you start going into oh, towns, yeah. music festivals, and just start slaughtering people, I mean, it's... it's lose it's, me entirely. That's yeah. why I say it's, they're not a fundamental government, and that's yeah. where the dishonor comes in. What do you think about the UAW issue? We only got a few minutes. Yeah. What about it? Come on, man. <laughs> it is, you know, it's it's one of those things where the UAW's got their heels dug in. You've got Ford, you've got General Motors saying they've got a line of credit into, into the tunes of four to six billion dollars. So they're digging in as well. The UAW made a lot of progress with the with the EV plants being involved in the national deal with General Motors on Friday. Um, will Ford be as willing? Will Stellantis be as willing? We'll see. I, I imagine they're going to have to follow suit. I'll tell you, I have clients on both sides, and I have had now for the better part of 20 years, both salary people from Ford and GM and union people, more mm-hmm. salary than union people. But the reality is that I, I have watched since 2008, most of the union people came out on the better side of that in terms of benefits packages, still having pension in mm-hmm. many cases. Uh, there is a uh, what the one thing that really bugs me when I listen to Mary Barra, for example, especially Mary talk, is that all the platitudes that are thrown out there, sometimes you just want the obvious to be said. And that would be, look, there is a limit to how much we can pay for general labor. Mm-hmm. I do not see the lady who made my nachos and hot dog and my beer the other day at the Lions game. She's not refusing to work because Jared Goff makes $21 million. Sure. The janitor at the hospital is making significantly less than the cardiovascular surgeon mm-hmm. who's going to keep me alive. There is there is a sense to a large degree that we have to remember that the world has different stations in it. And while all those stations may be necessary to make the cogs keep clicking, you can only hold a big company like that hostage for so long. And record-breaking Free. profits, record-breaking profits are good. GM stockholders haven't made a new penny in basically five years. That stock is flat. Record-breaking profits don't all go into Mary Barra's pockets so she can float around in the Maldives with a lineup of uh, you know white glove servants. It Correct. just doesn't work that way. So at some point, people need to start speaking the truth and saying, look, we get it. You want more money? We're helping you make good cars. You guys are making a bundle. Let's all come to the middle. I can't believe this thing isn't over yet. I, I, I was going to be really shocked if it, if it got done before Halloween. And we're we're on path for that. My my hope is in the next couple of weeks we really get this done. I've never understood though. Well, they make so much money. I don't get it. They're supposed to. That's that's the job. Anybody who who is complaining that a company, any corporation, is making record breaking profits needs to stop going on Amazon and buying that next roll of toilet paper or that next whatever it is. thing for the garage because all you're really doing is then is being a hypocrite to that particular thing. These yeah. companies that succeed are succeeding because of a capitalist structure that flows down and down and down and down. That's good for everybody. You know who else it's good for? Because I want to get into this tomorrow. There's hundreds of thousands of people trying to cross this border to get those same kind of jobs. And they'll never make a fraction of what somebody on the assembly line makes. It's a weird world we live in, Chris. Don't say that. Hey, have fun for the next two hours talking (laughs) about wars and arguing. (laughs) It's going to be great. Good to see you. I will see you tomorrow again. All right. See you.